Welcome to Research Recap, our research podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Research Recap, we'll bring you the latest industry analysis and research insights from our team of award-winning experts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Research Recap. My name is John Sim, and I head J.P. Morgan's Securitized Products Research. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Anthony Pallone, co-head of U.S. Real Estate Stock Research, and Mike Rehart, U.S. Home Building and Building Products Equity Analyst. We're here to discuss the overall state of the U.S. housing market. Anthony and Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John. So, Anthony, I'd like to kick things off with you. Can you give us a broad overview of the state of the U.S. housing market right now? You know, one way I like to start this out is to just give a sketch of the housing market in the U.S. very broadly. I think it's oftentimes helpful. So, as a country, we've got about 145 million housing units. And I think if you apply some average values to those units, it's probably worth over $40 trillion. So it's quite a bit, and it's quite sizable. And what's interesting is about two-thirds of the housing in the U.S. is owned by the occupant, or maybe it's even a second home for folks, but it's more or less owner-occupied. Well, the other one-third is for rent housing. And so that sets the stage as to you know, exactly what is in the housing stock in the U.S. What's also interesting is about two-thirds of housing is a detached home, basically a single-family house, whereas the other one-third is attached or like a multifamily apartment complex. Now, just because it's a detached house doesn't mean that it's owner-occupied because some of those are rentals. And just because it's an apartment building, it doesn't mean it's for rent. It could be condos. So those two types of housing, whether it's owner-occupied or rental, whether it's single-family or an apartment complex, they overlap. But that gives you some sketch as to what the stock of U.S. housing looks like. Now, in terms of state of the market, one thing to note is that we think the housing stock is very tight right now. And by that, we mean that the 145 million units are being well-utilized. So if we think back you know, let's say since the global financial crisis in the 2008 timeframe, the U.S. has been producing about 1.2 million new households each year. And if you look at the incremental supply of homes to house these households, that was basically growing at about 1.1 million units per year. So just a little bit less than the incremental demand. But what's interesting is on top of that, We do demolish, maybe because of obsolescence or alternative use, a couple hundred thousand housing units each year. And so if you think about it, over the last, call it roughly 15 years, we've been adding about 1.2 million households and producing about 900,000 homes, so about 300,000 short of the demand. And so that has led to a situation today where you know, the market's pretty tight and vacancy rates are, are pretty low. And so that is how I would kick things off. And maybe I'll turn it over to Mike because he could talk about his world and maybe what the home builders are doing. Thanks, Tony. You know, when you think about the progression of the housing market in 2023, there has been some amount of stabilization and even recovery. And that's in the face of mortgage rates hovering between six and even most recently above 7%. And so the most often question that we receive is essentially how that's possible, where you have affordability at 30-year lows. 
And I think it really goes back to, Tony, to your point around the tightness of supply. And, you know, you could think about it conceptually that whereas last year when the market was red hot before the rise in interest rates, perhaps there were five buyers for every available home. Today, perhaps there's still two or three. In other words, the reduced affordability is likely taken out some percent of qualified buyers, but you're still at a point where the housing market is as strong as it is because supply is so tight. And from a home builder perspective, the publicly traded home builders that we follow, the larger national ones, are filling that void where existing homes for sale today are very hard to be found. You have single-family existing homes for sale below a million whereas prior trough levels were a million and a half to two million, the new construction market, the publicly traded home builders, the large home builders are filling that void and doing quite well so far this year. I think another driver of the housing market today and something that we've pointed out in our research late last year is that historically, in order for housing activity to resume amid a rising rate period, you simply need rates to stabilize. In other words, during a rising rate period, consumers often freeze and stop placing orders, stop buying homes because of the fact that the monthly payment changes very quickly. To put it more colloquially, the ground kind of just shifts underneath consumers' feet. Once rates stabilize, not go down, but just stabilize, that allows for consumers to make a decision. Perhaps it's a slightly smaller home or, or less expensive or further out, but that's really what we've seen today in terms of the resumption of activity in the housing market. And as long as rates are more or less stable and hold where they are currently, we would think that absent a more negative scenario in the macro economy, you could have the current level of activity continue. Well, thanks, Mike. I think maybe I can just jump in now and give a little view on sort of home prices and where we think things are going there from that perspective. Just to put things in context, home prices have peaked June of 2022. And after that, we saw seven consecutive months of declines in a row, effectively, and bringing peak to trough HBI to negative 3.7% in January of this year. And then we shifted to a series of four consecutive months of increases, bringing us to today, really. And so the past four months of increases actually erased all the decline that we saw from the peak. And we're actually at a new high now and 0.7% above the peak in June. So it might seem a bit surprising given all the ebbs and flows that we've talked about with home prices. And at the end of the day, we ended up really kind of at a new high at almost precisely the time when mortgage rates are actually at a new high as well. You know, we're at 7%, depending on the index you want to use to track mortgage rates. And I think that that's a pretty significant factor in, in terms of what the continued stress may be on housing going forward. Like Mike and Anthony both really talked about the lack of supply and affordability, I think, is really where the friction starts to come in. What we've seen in terms of friction is when the mortgage payment ratio to income there's lots of ways you can calculate that, but the pretty standard way is just median home prices and the median income you would use to calculate that. So effectively, when that gets to about 35%, you start seeing some friction. And we did see that happen in November. And previously, you really only saw that happen back into like the early 90s. So affordability is effectively the worst it's been in quite some time. And we do think that that's going to put some pressure 
but I think marginal because of the lack of supply, because there's borrowers who just aren't really going to try to get out of their low mortgage rate and at least do it voluntarily. So I think what that means is that we just see that affordability pressure put on home prices and we end up flat for 2023. That means we erase most of what we've seen because right now we're about 4.2% year to date. And so we think that you'll see that just, just get chipped away as if rates stay high. I think one thing to think about too is I know that we just had a pretty good inflation number and everyone's talking about the Fed and what they're doing with rates. Seems like another rate hike is probably in the cards at this point in July. Whether or not we see another one after that is really debatable. But I think what it's really saying is it's possible that we sit here for a while with high mortgage rates and that's where we continue to see that pressure. But before moving on, just something on the rent and buy dynamic, it's worth mentioning. We see that it makes sense to rent more than buy in 99% of the MSAs. In other words, you really should only buy in 1%. So it's a very, very different dynamic when you're talking about buying a property versus renting. And so with that, Anthony, do you think you could maybe talk a little bit about the rental market narrative? Yeah, sure. So along those lines, we've seen this lack of affordability manifest itself pretty clearly in the rental market. And so we have seen renters staying in their units longer And it's one part of the puzzle that's allowed landlords to continue to push rents higher. And so if we step back, if you think about what the Fed has been doing, trying to bring the CPI and inflation down here over the last year or so, but if you think about it, a big part of the CPI is housing. And the Fed increasing rates has actually been part of the driver that's actually made housing a bit less affordable and in turn has allowed landlords to push rents even a bit higher because, again, these residents are staying in place longer and the idea of moving out to buy a home is perhaps a bit more challenging. And so the whole equation is a bit circumspect and interesting here. And what we've seen is that even going into the summer for June, July, and into August, for the companies that report this data publicly, the rent increases that they were sending out to existing customers to do a renewal has been about 6%. And that number is a bit stronger than what we anticipated at this point in the year. We assumed that there would be some deceleration in rental rate growth. We still think that's going to happen over the next couple of quarters. But with rates being where they are, and as you articulated, that affordability kind of moving out there quite a bit, it has given landlords more pricing power a bit longer than we expected. Now, as we look out for the next few quarters, you do still have a sizable supply pipeline of apartment projects that are going to get delivered. We do think that that, and perhaps in combination with an economy that moderates a bit here in the next few quarters, you will start to see that growth in rental rates come down a bit. Again, I think you know what we've seen on the rental side has been very consistent with the discussion you just had around affordability. And to add a finer point onto that, income levels have kept pace in many instances. And so again, with the publicly reported data from a number of the companies that provide this, what we've seen is even though rents have moved higher, the income levels have also followed. So rent income levels have been running about 20% very consistently now. And again, that's allowed the landlords to keep some pricing power here. I want to kick it over to Mike now. You mentioned the global financial crisis a bit earlier. And I guess, you know, with 2008 still somewhat fresh in a lot of folks' minds, 
Any similarities you're seeing in the housing market today or any contrast you would make versus the GFC or what was leading up to that? I think the only similarity perhaps going into the GFC in terms of where we are today is just the strength in home prices overall, absent the more, I guess now you could call it temporary weakness in the back half of last year. But I think, you know, more important is probably some of the dissimilarities that we see. Number one, as we've kind of hit on a couple of times in this podcast, is the tightness in supply. I think that's very, very much of a stark difference. And secondarily, in terms of also limiting downside risk to the market, is the change in the mortgage market itself, the absence, in effect, of adjustable rate mortgages. And you can use that as an umbrella category for some of the subprime, alt-A, no-name, no-doc, low-doc loans that really were kind of the epicenter of the pullback in the housing market and the fallout in home prices and foreclosures and excess supply that eventually created an awash of supply and the protracted downturn in the housing market around the GFC, we just don't see that today. And I'm sure it's something that John can hit on as well. But just as a point in contrast, prior to the GFC, adjustable rate mortgages, as again, that broad category, represented roughly one-third of the total dollars outstanding of the overall mortgage market. Today, it's under 5%. And so when you think about downside risk, which I would view as the critical differentiator in terms of understanding the current state of market today versus 2008, you have very tight supply, you have a significantly stronger mortgage market, both of which limit substantial foreclosures to the extent that we go into another economic downturn. And as a result, I think makes the housing market today much stronger structurally. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think that point about adjustable rate mortgage is very important too. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the UK with basically the cost of living crisis is what they call it, where all their mortgages float. So as the Fed's been raising rates there, it's caused a real problem that we haven't really had here. Before we wrap up, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share that we didn't get a chance to touch on today, Tony or Mike? What I would wrap up with is two items on my side. One, going back to some of my initial comments, we have a large developed economy that's still adding households. And so I think that creates a very broad housing complex that's pretty healthy. While tight today, it's still large and growing, and I think that's a positive. One thing I'd mentioned about the rental side over the years I've done this that I've been impressed with is simply the institutionalization of the landlords and how corporatized they've become in the service levels and the products that they're providing customers. I think that's a real positive to the housing complex as well. So those are the couple of things I would wrap up with on my side. I guess from my perspective, when you think about you know the home building companies that have become bigger and broader in scope, I'd also echo that the product that they put out today at the best affordable price and certainly energy efficient and with a lot of upgrades that you simply can't find in a lot of the existing home stock, the demand for new homes is well above where the proportion of new homes versus existing homes is today. While affordability is certainly top of mind in terms of the challenge of home ownership for most consumers, to the extent that people are able to find homes that fit their budget, given the stronger state of the housing market that we see today, we think that it's an investment that should work well over time. I think I could just throw in one thing as well, is just 
that, you know, with 65% home ownership earlier that Tony mentioned, that 75% of anyone who has a mortgage right now basically has a 4% or lower mortgage rate. And that's a very valuable asset for them. And particularly in scenarios now where there's also a lot of equity. So you have a lot of health in the guys who actually have a mortgage right now. For those trying to go into it, it's a little more challenging. But for those that actually have a mortgage now, they're pretty healthy. So this has been an extremely informative discussion. I want to thank you both for taking the time to come on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and insights today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into Research Recap on J.P. Morgan's Making Sense podcast channel. We hope you join us next time. Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.